You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I discuss my most recent personal real estate deal, my third house hack. Then I sit down with Steve Olson to discuss investing in multifamily properties, specifically fourplexes, and other strategies used in real estate investing. Steve is the director of sales at Fourplex Investing Group and invests mainly in the Utah, Texas, and Idaho markets. Before we get into the interview with Steve, I'm going to do a deep dive into my most recent house hack deal that I did. I posted all about this on Instagram and I got a lot of questions about it. So I wanted to include that here in this week's episode. I hope it's helpful for you guys. I hope it teaches you that you can do this too. So without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And as I said in the intro, I'm going to talk a bit here at the beginning of the episode about my most recent house hack deal. I know you guys like hearing about what I'm doing. And part of the show is allowing you guys as the audience to learn with me as I build my real estate portfolio. It's no secret. I don't own a thousand units. I don't own hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate. I'm a relatively new investor learning with you guys. I've done a decent amount of deals, but I'm still a relatively new investor and I'm still learning along the way. So I want you guys to be able to learn with me as I go along. And so I want to share the details of my most recent deal. And I think there's a lot to learn from it. So first, what kind of deal is it? It's a house hack, as I mentioned. It's a duplex, which means there's two units. So I'll be living in one of the units and I'll be renting out the other unit to reduce my mortgage. And for those who don't know what a house hack is, a house hack at its simplest form, it just means that you're buying a property and you're renting out any of the extra space. So you could buy a single family house with four or five bedrooms and live in one of the bedrooms and then rent out the rest of the bedrooms. That would be considered a house hack. Or you could buy a two unit like I just did, live in one of the units and rent out the others. Or you could buy a triplex or a fourplex, which is just three and four units respectively, and live in one of the units and rent out the additional units. Typically, the more units that you have or the more bedrooms you rent out, the better your cash flow is. But for me, we'll see in this deal that I've been able to make the numbers work pretty well for a duplex. And so where is it? I live in the greater Boston area, actually about an hour outside of Boston in New Hampshire. So I bought this in Southern New Hampshire. It had a purchase price of 330000 I used a 30-year fixed rate FHA loan at 2.25% interest rate. My down payment was 11500 and the closing costs were about 10500 which means to close this deal, I would have needed to bring about $22,000 in cash to the closing table to make this deal happen. However, I negotiated a $10,000 seller credit. And for those who don't know what a seller credit is, that is basically just cash back that the seller gives you. And I'll go into that a little bit more in a little bit more detail in my explanation in a couple minutes, but just know that I used the $10,000 seller credit. So this means the total cash I needed was $22,000. I got a $10,000 seller credit. So that reduces the amount of cash I needed to bring to the table from $22,000 down to $12,000, right? $22,000 minus $10,000 is $12,000. 
So now I only needed $12,000 to close this deal and get a $330,000 asset. The other unit currently rents for $1,200 a month until December 31st. That's when their lease is up. The total mortgage is about $1,950. That's including taxes, insurance, and PMI because I put down less than 20%. So that's all in covering PITI, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and PMI. So that means my portion is $750 per month, which means take the $1,950 minus the $1,200 that I receive in rents, which gives what's left to cover the mortgage, $750 a month for me. Now, one of the reasons why I bought this asset is because one, that allows me to live for $750 a month while having a very nice home to live in, which is very affordable, especially in the greater Boston area, which is an expensive market. But also because I see an opportunity to increase rents in this area. And I want to talk about how I actually raised rents during a global pandemic. And I'm not saying this to sound heartless or, you know, being tone deaf to the current situation, but people need to understand that this is also a business and it needs to be run like one. So in the lease renews January 1st, I raised the rents to $1,300 from $1,200 to $1,300. So I wasn't being completely ruthless. And I wanted to show the tenants this as I'm their new landlord. I wanted to show them that I'm being reasonable and fair. And so what I did was I gave them all of their documents, their new lease, their move-in, move-out checklist, their security deposit form that they had to fill out. And I also gave them a three-page report showing the average rents in this area. And so if you ran a three-quarter mile radius around the property, there were 31 different two-bedroom, one-bath rental units in that area. And they all averaged out to an average rent of $1,800 per month. So that means my rent at $1,300 is a great deal. And I wanted to show them that. I I wanted to show them. I said, listen, I am raising your rent $100 a month. I know it's not necessarily a great time and I'm sorry about that, but the unit is under-rented. And I could have gone closer to $1,800. I probably could have pushed $1,500, $1,600, $1,700 for that unit, but I'm trying to be reasonable and I only increased it to 1300. And when I handed him the paperwork, he was very appreciative that I gave him that report. He said to me, he's like, you don't have to give me this report. You don't have to explain yourself. You're, you're allowed to raise the rents if you want to. And I was like, no, I know, I know I can, but I wanted to show you that I'm trying to be reasonable and I'm trying to do the right thing. You know, this is a business and it needs to be run like one. And I told him that, but also I want to realize that these are humans that you're dealing with. These are other people that this is their home and you need to be realistic in that as well. And so trying to balance that dynamic. And that's why I only raised rents $100 a month. But the way I approached it allowed the tenant to not be mad at me as their new landlord. I wanted to make sure, I mean, we're going to be living next to each other. So I wanted to make sure I maintain that relationship, which it seems like has gone over well. So with the increase in rents from 1200 to 1300 my new portion is 650 So that's how much I have to pay is $650 a month. Because the total mortgage is nineteen fifty minus the thirteen hundred in rent that I receive, and then six fifty is what's left. And so going down from seven fifty to six fifty, I essentially gave myself a hundred dollars per month tax free raise. Now I realize a hundred dollars a month probably isn't a lot of money, but it's a tax free raise that I'm able to choose on my own. I'm in control of. And so for me, just one quick little decision and by buying this asset, I was able to give myself a small raise. So living in the asset is only one half of the equation. The other half is your exit strategy or what you plan to do. And if you plan to only live in it 
and then sell it when you're done, that's an option. And you don't necessarily have to worry about the numbers when you leave in that case, because you'll just sell it and you'll be done with it. But for me, I tend to try to keep the units. And so for my for this deal, my, my goal is to buy the property, live in it for a year or two, and then rent it out and then do it again. And so I approach this with that in mind. And so I'm able to live for cheap, only $650 or $750 per month in the greater Boston area, which is very affordable in that area. $650 to $750 is very affordable for the greater Boston market. And also the cash flow when I sell is going to be great. So when I leave, I'll be able to rent both units. I think I'll be able to get them to market value, which will be about $1,500 per month. So that'll bring me to total income of $3,000 per month for this property. And if you remember, the mortgage is about $1,950. So that means I'll get $1,050 per month in cash flow, which is over $500 per door. Now, I know that's not including anything that I need to set aside for reserves. And so let's just assume it'll be between $600 and $700 per month in cash flow after I've put money aside for reserves. So we're looking at $300 to $350 per door even after I've put aside reserves. So this is a great deal. When I live in it, I get to live for cheap in an expensive market. And when I sell, I'll be making $300 to $350 in cash flow per door. And that's a, that's a fantastic rental. And when you consider that in terms of cash on cash, let's just look at it assuming a $300 per cash flow. So 300 times 12, 3,600 times two, because there's two doors. So $7,200 in net cash flow after putting money aside for reserves per year for this property. And if you remember, I only put $12,000 into this property. So that's over a 50% cash on cash return. In two years, I'll have all of my cash back just from net cash flow in this deal. And so the two important points I want you to learn and take from this is that one, you can find good deals in this market. I would classify this as a great deal. Would it be it could be better if I if I could live for cheaper? I mean $650 per month is great. Even $750 is great. But of course, if that was zero or if I could even make money while I lived here, that would be fantastic. Those are hard to find as well. A little bit easier if you go to three or four units, but with a duplex, that's very, very difficult. So I think this is a great deal. And it could be found even in expensive markets like the Boston market, like where I live. And to take it even a step further, I found this deal on the MLS. So you can find deals on the MLS. This property had been sitting on the market for about 40 or 50 days, and which is very, very abnormal, especially in this market for properties in this area. And just for some context, I sold a, dupl- a different duplex. Just I only owned half of it. And I sold my half, a different house that I owned to do this transaction. And that house sold in about six to 12 hours. And it was nothing fancy. So to see a property on the MLS for 40 or 50 days is a bit interesting. And you know, a lot of times people see those and they avoid them because they think something must be wrong. And so deals can be found on the MLS. Go look at them, run the numbers, see if they make sense. You can find good deals in this market. That's the first point that I want you guys to take away from this. And the second thing arguably even more important, is to utilize a seller credit. And so just to go over that again, a seller credit is just cash back that the seller is giving you. And in next week's episode with Philip Michael, I dive into this a little bit deeper. And I talk about this on my Instagram, and I'll actually do a much longer segment all about seller credits in a future episode, because I think 
It's super, super powerful. Every real estate deal that I've ever done, I've utilized the seller credit to reduce the amount of cash that I have to go into a deal with. That allows me to increase my cash on cash return and also get into more deals because I don't need as much cash. And so I think that's really, really valuable and really important and powerful for new investors who don't have a lot of money. And if you do it right, it doesn't harm your negotiating power when you're going into a deal because you can still give the seller the amount of cash that they want. So I think the biggest thing, two biggest things to learn are you can find good deals in this market, even on the MLS. And number two, you need to utilize a seller credit when it's possible and when it makes sense to. I definitely don't see enough new investors or just investors in general talk about this or use it in their own practice. And again, I'll talk about this a little bit more in depth with the Philip Michael episode next week. And then I talk about it quite a bit on my Instagram. So if you're not following me, be sure to do that. My username is at the Robert Leonard. So my handle is the Robert Leonard. Talk about this. I talk about my deal. I talk about a bunch of other real estate, personal finance, and stock investing strategies. So definitely follow me. And I'll do a much longer segment about seller credits in an episode in the future because I think it's that powerful. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that deep dive into my house hack. I hope you got some good, valuable information and strategies and tips and tricks from it. If you have questions about this deal, I'm an open book. I'm happy to talk about it. Happy to talk about anything regarding it, strategies, negotiation, the property itself, anything like that. So if you have any questions, feel free to DM them to me on Instagram and I'll be happy to get back to you guys. And now let's get into my interview with Steve Olson. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today. I have uh, been in the real estate business since I was in college as an undergraduate. And it's kind of funny. At the time, I was working for a real estate guru. Many of your listeners might know the name Robert Allen. He's kind of one of the early infomercial guys teaching people how to do real estate and such. And uh, I had a friend who was working for him. And I thought, you know, at the time I was going to be an attorney, I was going to get my undergrad and then go to law school, but I had to make money. You know, you're in college. And so I heard how much my buddy was making and I thought, I got to do that. That sounds great. So I went over there and I was just purely administrative stuff, shipping boxes and taking some calls. But I could hear down the hall, the real estate coaches helping these clients through deals and clips and different things like that. And I thought, you know, that's, that's actually a really good way to pay for law school so that I'm going to go do a flip. Well, fast forward, I got into the first one and I'm sitting in a class in spring semester. The topic was political philosophy. It was just terribly boring. It was just an awful class. And because it was in spring semester, the semester was short. So the class times were really long. These were like four hour long classes. And so I'm sitting in there bored to tears one spring day and I get a text message. I don't know. I'll I'll date myself a little bit here, but it was on something called BlackBerry. And at the time, it was 25 cents to send and receive a text message. So I thought, this better be good. And I open up my BlackBerry and there's a text from my friend. It says, we just closed escrow. I've got a cashier's check for you for $17,000. And when you're in college, $17,000 is like $17 million to a normal person. And so I sat there, I looked at the phone. I don't know how long I looked at it, but I got up and I left and I never went back. And I've been in real estate one way or the other ever since then. I want to talk a lot about what you're doing at the Fourplex Investment Group. But before we get to that, I want to talk more about your personal journey in real estate. We just talked about your first deal 
What did your next couple deals look like after that? After that, it was mostly single family uh, wholesale type deals. This was at a time where that was a lot easier to do, a lot less regulated, a lot less competition, right? And then I kind of found myself when we had the great, the big meltdown in 08, I was able to successfully complete a couple of, they called them bulk portfolios at the time. Fannie Mae had massive packages of delinquent loans and and they would package these up. And, and most of it was just garbage property. But they put a few good ones in there to motivate you just enough to want to do the deal. And I completed two of those. I'm probably one of the only people that I personally know that had. There was so much talk around that time, people trying to do those deals. But I got two of them done. And the best deal, though, that I did... So you know, we talk about single families and some assignments and things like that, was actually assigning a whole bunch of raw land right near Park City, Utah. I remember on that one deal, I made a really hefty six-figure assignment fee. And I thought, wow, that's cool. That's when I started to realize, you know, it kind of takes the same amount of work to do a big deal as it does a small deal. And, and that's when I started to kind of try to think a little bit bigger about how real estate worked. And ever since then, really, it's been mostly bigger deals. I try to work on uh, multifamily properties and uh, development. For those listening today that might not know what an assignment fee is, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think actually an assignment, in, depending on how you do it, is might even be illegal to some degree in a lot of states now. There's ways you can structure it, but that varies based on the state that you're in. An assignment is where you talk to Bob the seller. Bob wants to sell. You put the property under contract, and then you know Susie, the investor. And you happen to know that Susie is really interested in properties in that neighborhood. And she may be willing to pay $100,000 for a property in that neighborhood. Well, you offered Bob the seller $80,000. So you can essentially sell your purchase contract to the end buyer. So you never really close on the property. When the end buyer closes, you make an assignment fee of that spread. So that's what kind of a basic definition of what an assignment is. So fast forwarding to today, are you still wholesaling? I'm not. What does your personal portfolio look like today? Well, I'm mostly buy and hold. I think that the tax advantages and the cash flow that come from buy and hold when you're willing to be patient are really great, especially when it comes to new construction. Really love the new construction side of things. So I own a number of fourplexes. I'm in a couple of syndications right now for large apartment buildings and uh, looking at putting together a couple more here in uh, 2021. Let's talk about fourplexes and what, what you're doing with Fourplex Investment Group. For those listening that don't know what a fourplex is or just hasn't heard that term specifically before, what is a fourplex? Uh, well, a fourplex is basically a small apartment building. It's just four units. So four separate doors underneath one roof. The reason it's a highly unique product and why people are, are really attracted to it really comes down to financing. You might ask me about this later, but when we talk about financing, you can buy properties with either conventional loans or commercial loans. There are some other choices, but those are the most common by far. And a conventional loan for the listeners, that's the same kind of mortgage that you use to buy your house. You go to a bank, you go to a mortgage broker, they give you a conventional loan. And that is good on any properties that are one to four units. You can buy a home, a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex with a conventional loan. Now, it's different than commercial money because commercial is what you use for an office building, a storage facility, some kind of a big property that is more than uh, five units or, or is not residentially purposed. The reason that's important 
is because a conventional loan is a true 30-year fixed rate loan. It has the lowest available interest rates. And that's the kind of loan that if you make your payment every month for 30 years, you own the property. On a commercial deal, it's different because 10 years in, you usually have to pay the property off, refinance it. You're kind of in the game of trading in and out of properties more, but a conventional is much more of a permanent loan and it has the best financing options available. So fourplexes are great because you maximize the best financing. You're getting the most of the best kind of money that there is out there. So I see and understand the benefits of of maximizing the advantage of, of taking a single family and a multifamily in one product. But one of the most powerful things that I've personally ever seen in real estate is how much a commercial property value can be increased by just slightly increasing its net operating income or the cap rate adjusting. And when I say commercial property, I don't mean an office building or even like a 100-unit apartment building. I'm talking about even just a five-unit building. Because banks typically, like you said, consider anything above four units to be commercial property. And commercial property is valued based on its income that it generates rather than on comps like the four units or fourplexes that we've been talking about. So my question is, why wouldn't you or Fourplex Investment Group add just one more unit and take advantage of the opportunity for the property to be valued based on its income rather than comps? That's a good question. And I would preface it with, we actually do do some bigger buildings um, periodically. So sometimes in a project, we might have mostly fourplexes, but we'll peel off a couple 12 or 20 unit buildings based on our, our site plan. Because what you're saying is absolutely true. What you're saying also implies that the building needs is not operating at peak efficiency. So when we talk about cap rates, right? And for those of I'll be very basic here, but cap rate is just your net operating income divided by your purchase price. And it's a very quick way that investors use to gauge how good of a deal is. So the higher the cap rate, presumably the higher the cash flow you get, the lower the cap rate, the lower cash flow, but also I think you'd agree, probably the lower risk, right? A lower cap rate usually means it's a more stable asset. So what's really interesting about fourplexes is they kind of straddle that line between commercial, so five units and above, and residential. Because a lot of people that buy fourplexes are buying them because of the cash flow. They're valuing it themselves based on the cap rate. That's how they determine the value. But they want to have the best of both worlds because then they turn around and then they want to use financing that relies on comps in order to buy that property. So we actually do see properties and fourplexes trade more and, and accelerate in value if rents do go up. It definitely happens because people are willing to buy them based on that cap rate. But what's interesting is you'll usually need one property, one fourplex in the area to kind of set the tone. Because if the comps aren't there to support the sale, you can't really open up the whole can. Usually what we see is somebody comes in with an all-cash 1031 exchange. We operate mostly in the Intermountain West. So somebody from San Francisco comes in, they just sold their shopping center. So to them, a 5% cap rate in Utah, Idaho, or Arizona on a brand new property is awesome compared to what they know. They come in with cash and then bam, all of a sudden, your comps, in fact, that just happened to us in Utah, our comps are a million bucks for a fourplex. So that appraisal is there, but also the income is good enough for those that want to buy that way. Kind of a long answer, but in a way, we are talking about the same thing. Yeah, the comps is what can be a little bit of a limiting factor on the fourplexes, I guess you could say, because if you have one property that generates a ton of cash flow and you have a property next door that's being run 
poorly and it's not making much cash at all, but it's the same property. They're going to be valued the same based on comps. Whereas if those were commercial properties, they'd be valued very differently. Yeah. I think that if we assume that the buyer is someone uneducated, that could be a problem, but you know what's going to happen. And just because a guy listed it for $100,000 doesn't mean he's getting it. An educated buyer is going to put that under contract. They're going to dig into the leases and expenses. They're going to say, yeah, you're selling yours for this, but you don't throw off the same income that the one next door does. And, and that's, you know, these smaller multifamily properties kind of operate in this area of inefficiency. Usually you're dealing not with the institutional, very efficient owners, you're dealing with mom and pop. And so there's more of a chance for, for inefficiency to take place. And that's actually, frankly, that's opportunity for investors because where there's inefficiency, there's opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly right. Usually if you can find a five to 10 unit building, sometimes even a little bit bigger, you can find those mom and pop owners who don't necessarily have all their processes in intact or you know have it as efficient as they can. Maybe they've owned it for 30 years and it's just kind of been the same that it's been for, for as long as it has been. They haven't raised rents or anything like that. And that provides opportunity for a new buyer to come in, run it efficiently, raise rents to market and significantly increase the value of that property because it's more than five units. Yeah, that's what's cool about the multifamilies. You, know, you raise rents just a little bit per door, that value catapults massively. And there's people that make an entire living on, on doing that. So I want to talk about how a new construction deal can offer similar benefits to a Burr deal or a value-add deal. And for those who aren't familiar with Burr or value-add, give us a quick explanation of what those are. So Burr, B-triple-R, sometimes I get this out of order, <laughs> stands for buy, renovate, rent, and then refinance. Did I get it right? You did. Okay, got it. But it's really the same premise. You're just doing it with one door versus four, five, 10, 20 doors. So the property is not, I like to use the term, and this is frequent in the, in the real estate world, highest and best use. A property's highest and best use means it's doing the most optimal thing that it can for what it is at that location. So for example, you wouldn't put like a, a little pawn shop in downtown San Francisco. That's financial district that needs to be an office building. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. So a rundown property that you're going to do a bird on, or let's say what we would call a C-class apartment building built in the 1960s that uh, has not been renovated or has had very little DLC put into it over the years. That's begging for what they call a value add. Let's buy it and tenants' leases are going to expire. We're going to evict some tenants too that aren't paying. And then we go in there and we get rid of the shag carpet. We put in better, you know, some LVT floor, new counters. We paint it, come in with new appliances, right? You're adding value. So now instead of somebody only being willing to pay 500 bucks a month for that unit, now they're willing to pay 900 because they live in a much nicer complex. Same thing as a Burr. So the way the new construction compares to that is in principle, you're bringing a property up to its highest and best use. You're taking a raw piece of ground and you're backing into going, hey, what are the rents like? What are the expenses like in this area? And you are converting that raw piece of ground into an income producing piece of property, right? So that's where we see a lot of our, our owners get value is because if you're going to go put a fourplex on the open market, you're going to charge market rate for it. You're going to try to back into that cap rate. But if we're going to sell a fourplex to an investor that's got to wait for construction and go through all that, they got to go through the lease up, we kind of give them a better price. Otherwise, why would they buy from us? Why wouldn't they just go to the open market? We have to give them something that beats the market. So 
it ends up being a good opportunity, especially for really busy investors. I call it the armchair value had because you're just hiring our construction company. You're signing your DocuSigns. You're going through the build. It's all done for you. But when you understand in the grand scheme of things, how it fits, it's a pretty similar component, pretty similar process to a value add. I know you're able to also use bonus depreciation from a cost segregation study to reduce your tax bill by almost, say, $70,000. And I want to talk about that. But for those who haven't heard of cost segregation, first, tell us a little bit about what a cost segregation study is and how it works. Well, that's a can of worms, a good one. I would preface it by saying I'm not a CPA. You got to check with your CPA. This impacts everybody differently. But the way this works this is a very simplified version. Okay. And I have to build a foundation in order for cost segregation to make sense. But when you own real property, the IRS lets you depreciate the vertical value or the sticks and bricks over 27 and a half years. You can't depreciate land, but you can depreciate vertical costs. So an investor owns a house, they can take, let's say that the sticks and bricks are worth $100,000, divide that by 27 and a half, and that's the, the write-off that they get every year. Okay, that's nice. It's a little bit of free money. I'm not paying taxes on that, on that depreciation. That starts to go away when you begin to make, I think the hurdle is at about 150000 You can't take that write-off every year. Those losses or that depreciation accumulates in a passive losses bucket, okay? And then you're going to use that later, maybe when you sell the property to wipe out your, your gains or something like that. There's a concept out there called real estate professional. If you make a living in the real estate world, then you're not capped. Those passive losses go from being limited to unlimited. So now if you own a bunch of real estate, you could in theory have unlimited what are now active losses. So the way cost segregation plays into that is, I told you earlier, the IRS lets you depreciate your building over 27 and a half years, right? Well, I don't know if you've ever had carpet that lasted 27 and a half years or a water heater. We know for a fact that many of these components in the buildings don't last near that period of time. So when you do a cost segregation study, you hire a usually some kind of an engineering CPA hybrid firm. These are specialists that do this. And they look at your plans and they dig into that building and they break it out into different categories. And they say, okay, here are items that you can depreciate over five years. Here's a list of items you could do over 10 and 15 and so on and so forth. I might be getting the, the years wrong, but it's something like that. And so now you're able to take a whole bunch of that depreciation and move it forward so you can pay less in taxes today. So if you're a real estate professional, that matters because you, you have unlimited active losses that you can take. So far, that's cost segregation. Now, bonus depreciation, I'll probably butcher this a little bit, but due to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think this was passed by the Trump administration back in 2017, you can take most of all that cost segregation and cram it into the first, first couple of years on brand new construction. What this means is uh, you're going to get a whole truckload of write-offs. I'm a real estate professional based on the bracket you're in. You know, my cost said guys did a study for me. I paid him, I think, two grand for it, gave it to my CPA, and lowered my tax liability by $70,000. And in addition, I found some cool energy efficiency credits based on the type of air conditioners and HVAC systems we use. I was able to get an additional $2,000 per door on the fourplex off of that. So I'm turning around and I'm doing it to, to everything now. All right. So new construction offers that advantage. 
I don't know with the election if they're going to keep the bonus depreciation around or for how long they are, but we'll have to see. It's a valuable tool if you can become a real estate professional. You got to talk to your, your CPA about that and what the qualifications are like. Who are cost segregations really good for? And who might they not be so good for? That's a good question. You know, I've had a couple of CPAs give me some answers on that. Obviously, they're the best for real estate professionals that are doing new construction. I don't think anyone's going to argue with me there. That's definitely who it's the best for. But even if you have older buildings, front-loading that depreciation, if you're a busy professional, you're paying a lot of taxes, that makes sense. I call this the holy grail. The best I've seen, because there's, there's qualifications to be a real estate professional you have to meet. Let's say you're a doctor, okay? It's, it's on your taxes. You've been practicing medicine for many years, but maybe you've got a spouse who's home and they're part-time or maybe they don't work. When you start to get a couple of properties, the case begins to emerge, and I'll leave it between you and your CPA to discuss when that is exactly. The case begins to emerge that, hey, the spouse is a real estate professional. They're making a living. So one spouse is working, the other is the real estate professional. And so they go get a cost seg study, they get the bonus depreciation. And because they're filing jointly, what does that do to all that W-2 that the working spouse is paying in tax? It really kicks it pretty hard in a good way. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Even for some people that can't be real estate professionals, I've heard a few CPAs say, you know what, in the end of the day, you come out ahead by doing a cost segregation study. So they'd have to look at your taxes, but that's, that's the best I can speak to it now. We're recording this here at the end of November. Obviously, with everything going on, there is a global pandemic. And I'd like to learn from the guests what they're learning about. What are they doing during this time to better themselves? So Steve, what has been the biggest thing that you've personally learned during COVID-19? And what are you doing to personally better yourself? Two things that I'm actually doing right now. I'm getting more educated. I'm actually getting a master's degree in real estate right now. It's opening up my understanding and my perspective on kind of the bigger side, the more institutional side of it. So that's been pretty cool. I've been cranking on that for about five months now, and I think I can be done in the next year or so. So I'm trying to learn and enhance my credentials. But I'm, I'm applying lessons that I learned in the last crash from 2008. And one of those lessons is keep going. Because I learned in 08, real estate came out of that thing. And then real estate arguably was the source of that crash. And luckily, this time around, real estate, especially residential real estate, has been vindicated in the COVID-19 pandemic. I like to joke, what did the government tell you to do? Stay home. That's like, hey, use Steve's product. That's what they said, right? Stay home. And so people definitely need a place to live and that hasn't changed. You have to just embrace the grind. Get down. It's a little harder to get deals done right now. You can totally get them done. There's massive demand, but procedurally financing title work, a lot of these things are just taking longer because everybody's backed up. But just keep grinding because I know I've seen it two times now. You come out on the other side of these things and it's the people that kept their head down and kept doing it when it was hard that really shoot up like a rocket when things get easy. So real estate agents and investors, they always come in when the getting's good. And then the herd gets thin when things get hard. So stay in, keep your head down, keep going, keep some reserves. You'll be fine. For new investor or somebody who's aspiring to become a real estate investor, and they might not be yet, who's listening to the show today, who has big goals, big real estate goals, what's the best piece of advice that you can give them? Do a deal. Get started. 
you're never going to run, you're never going to know everything. In fact, the, the bigger the deals that I get involved in, oftentimes shocked by, hey, we don't really know that much going into this. We know a few core principles, but mostly we know how to fix things and solve problems. So you're never going to feel 100% prepared. You got to jump in. You got to get some reps in. You got to get some at bats at the plate. That's what you got to do. There's no way around it. That alone is the quickest and the best thing that a, a beginner could do. You could read a bunch of books, read up on a bunch of theories and go to a bunch of seminars. None of that stuff replaces getting in and getting a deal. What kind of deal should they focus on? Does it even matter? I'm not so sure that it matters. You could argue that it's the same amount of work to do a big deal as it is a small deal. And that's, you know, there's some nuance to that. It's mostly true, but there's nuance to it. If you're just like, hey, no, I just want to prove that I can get through one, try to figure out a wholesale deal, try to figure out a cheap rental property that you can buy and go through the purchase process and experience some of what that's like. Experience what it's like to have your property manager say, hey, they're late on the rent. Um, deal with a repair, you know, because then when you experience it, you think about it and you solve it, you go, oh, I solved it because you're going to bump your head no matter how many deals you do. Some of them are going to be good. Some are going to be bad. But if you get in and you stay in, you're going to end up better off than when you started. Yeah. I usually recommend people start with a house hack, but what you just said is is very valid as well. And I think a lot of investors would, would do well if they, they took that advice. Steve, thanks for coming on the show today. Where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about all the different things you got going on? They can just go to the website, fig, like the fruit, because we're fourplex investment group, fig.us, fig.us. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes below in your favorite podcast player so that everybody listening today could go check that out if you are interested. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.